Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everybody. Rick Thomas here, and we are doing Life Over Coffee. Thank you so much for joining me. Please go over to our coffee shop, lifeovercoffee.com. We have thousands upon thousands of free resources that will help you personally and also in your relationships. Did you know that you have two possible responses to the problems that are in your life? Here they are. We can either be problem-centered or we can be God-centered, and that is it. The first reaction to our problems, well, it's going to lead to anxious, complaining, and fear-motivated comments. And I have been there, and I have done that many times. The second response is the path to peace, being God-centered when trouble comes into our lives. Now, it's hard to tell how mature we are until the suffering comes, unfortunately. And so it's wise to pay close attention to our thoughts and the words that come out of our mouths when the difficult times arrive, because those will be the indications that will reveal to us where we really are with other people and also with God. Perhaps the suffering will necessitate the Lord to take action, like whittling us down to a proper size so that he can build us back up into vessels for his use. It could be that the problems that come into our lives reveal that there are some things that necessitate for the great whittler to begin to take some things, some rough edges off of us. And so I want to talk about that just for a few moments. I have titled this, When God Whittles You Down to Size. Let me begin by sharing a story with you. Shortly after our daughter's first Christmas, this was, oh, 2000. Yes, it was 2000. I dragged the tree to our backyard to get rid of it. We had a a lovely security Included backyard, making it the perfect place to lay our Christmas tree to rest. Our neighbor was Mr. Campbell. Now, Mr. Campbell was one of the most inventive men that I had ever met, and one of many things that he loved to do is to whittle. And so he had a God-given talent for taking the nothingness of a dying Christmas tree and turning it into something special. And so Mr. Campbell saw what I was doing, and he asked if he could have our tree. Well, it had no value to us, and so I gave it to him. After a while, I had forgotten that he had taken our tree, and the following Christmas, Mr. Campbell knocked on our door, and to my surprise, he was standing there with a beautiful hand carved walking stick about the size of a and shape of a baseball bat. Now, for those of you who are listening to the podcast version of this, I am actually holding up that uh, Tristan's first Christmas tree that Mr. Campbell uh, whittled. And so he took our used and useless tree and he carved a beautiful walking stick right here to commemorate our daughter's first Christmas. And at the top of the stick, as you can see here, there is this beautifully detailed a, a uh, Santa's head 
as you can see here at the top. And then on the side of the stick were the words, and you won't be able to see this necessarily on the video, but right across here, he carved in these words, and it says, Tristan's very first Christmas tree, 2001. Now, there is a knot here. You see this indentation, and in this indentation, it says, Tristan Thomas. And so this, this is just... It, I mean, it's just awesome. And then he put a little stopper on the end to make it a walking stick. By the way, it, it also uh, doubles as a, a intruder deterrent. And so we keep this near our door. I've never used it that way before, but it's there. And so if we should have an intruder come into our home, they might have the imprint of Santa on the side of their, on the side of their head. We were humbled and we were surprised by what he did. I asked him about it and he told me, he said, I went down to the creek and I sat on my bench. Now, our yards were conjoined there and then right on the property line, he had built a little platform, a little deck over the creek. We had a creek that ran through the backyard. And he had a, um, a park bench on it. He would go down there all the time and just sit. And many times I'd see him whittling. I probably saw him whittling our Christmas tree. I just didn't know what he was doing. And so he said, I went down to the creek and I, I, I sat on the, the bench. And then I began to ponder, what is inside this tree? And so I sat and I, I started carving. After a while, I found this inside your Christmas tree. And he lifted up the pole to me again. And he was and he was beaming. And actually we were too and we have kept it all of these years. Mr. Campbell sat, he whittled, he took off some good wood, he took off some knotted wood. He kept cutting, he kept carving, he kept customizing until he came to the proper stopping place. The discovery inside our useless tree was a treasure that nobody else could see but Mr. Campbell. I didn't see it. I was hauling it off for it to lay to rest. Code for just rot yourself away. We're done with you. Lucia didn't see it. Tristan was clueless too. Only the master craftsman had a vision for what it could be. After months of curing the tree in the summer heat and a few days of carving through the fall, a year later, Mr. Campbell unveiled the previously hidden treasure. Only the master Whitler knew. The process was long and hard, but the woodcarver persisted, and he had the skill and the patience to make it happen. There are no appropriate analogies analogies for what Job experienced in the final chapter that documents his journey. My tree story is a small attempt to convey a big idea. This closing segment of Job's journey gives us a transparent, humble, and vulnerable picture of a broken man. God stripped down his life to where nothing was left that separated him from his maker. The losses were many. The complaints were bitter and unending. The advice from friends was insufficient. Job had finally come to the end of himself. He was not attempting to manipulate God through praying any longer. And he had already placed his hand on his mouth. 
He was not living in a self-cause, self-deception. He said it this way, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. His family was gone, his land was gone, his cattle was gone, his complaining was gone, his self-righteousness was gone, he had no more questions, those left him too. Job stopped talking and God transformed his heart. Job met God. He was stripped, he was naked, he was prostrate and whittled down to size as though he had returned to the dust from whence he came, waiting for God to put him back together again. Job had ears to hear and eyes to see what the Lord had in mind. The woodcarver had an idea. The woodcarver had a subject. Job was rough around the edges. Few people experience this kind of handiwork from God. Job was one of the lucky ones. Though getting to this place of true confession and humble rebuilding was devastating, the father carried Job through a terrifying and complicated time. He brought him to a place in their relationship that words could not describe. Sometimes verbalness can complicate things. It was time for Job to be quiet and to experience the terrifying greatness of God. David said it this way in Psalm 51 after he came to the end of himself in another kind of way as he was now in a penitent posture after his adultery with Bathsheba. He says, God, for you, you will not delight in sacrifices. You remember Job was sacrificing in chapter 1. Or else I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering as Job was doing again. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. It was Job and God alone. The Lord had his man where he wanted him, and Job was content to be there, empty-handed, broken-hearted, and ready to learn. We can become so distracted with the cares of this life that we drift from the shores of God's love, His faithfulness, His protective care. As we slumber through life, we need a wake-up call to navigate back to our first love. Our hearts are prone to wander, and our minds quickly forget the essential things to live well in God's world. Everything Job used to be was now gone. The old Job was dead. He was dead to himself. He was dead to his dreams, his needs, his desires, his hopes, his expectations. They were all demolished, and they were flattened and removed by God. Job was like Paul. You remember what Paul said in Philippians? He said, I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low like Job, and I know how to abound like Job. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Job could very well say those things. He began his journey with many personal blessings. In time, God ripped all of those good things away from him. There is no other way to say it. 
though it does cut against the grain of our spoiled and, and privileged lives. Job sinned in response to what was happening to him. Been there, done that. He was understandably dazed and confused. Even with the more profound needs of his soul not being met way back then in chapter 1, in his unwittingly deceived spiritual stupor, sacrificing to his sons or to God in, re, in regard to his sons. His dismay and crying did not alter God's plans for him. The woodcarver knew what needed to happen. And through it all, the Lord persevered with his devastated servant. Job could not perceive the things that were wrong with him. Only the Lord had the depth of vision to see what was wrong with his servant and what only he could change. The woodcarver would not release the bruised reed until he had completed the task. Job and I are similar in that way. I have gone through seasons of self-deception too. Sometimes it is a deceit from ignorance as a newborn baby is unfamiliar with meat. Other times we can be more premeditative, knowing exactly what we're doing wrong, but lacking the courage or the humility to change. In either case, we're not seeing what we need to see. We need someone outside of ourselves looking into our lives who loves us enough to do whatever it takes to change. The Lord is such a person. Of course, my problem is not only my self-deception. If I were honest, I would admit I do not want to be entirely known for who I am. Even under the light of God's omniscience, I tend to hide Mercifully, mercifully, the Lord does not recoil with this knowledge of me or, or punitively use it against me. The Lord is intentional and meticulous regarding the soul-shaping exercise of discipleship. The irony is that we cannot fool the one who sees in the dark. And this worldview compels God to strip me down from time to time. He wants me to see what he sees. He wants me to know what he knows. As Job said, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. He does not do this because he is mean or because he has the desire to toy with me. He does this because he loves me. Have you ever been stripped down by God? Many of you have, and you know exactly what I am talking about. Natasha just commented on a similar uh, video is this as I'm working through the book of Job, and she said that this has given me great encouragement as I hear your story because I have been going through a two-year ordeal myself. Natasha knows what it's like to be stripped down by God. Have you ever had the life-transforming experience of being hoisted upon the woodcarver's bench for a season of cutting and carving and contouring? Sometimes we need the hindrances removed for His glory, for our good, and for the benefit of others. He wants to reach, he wants to reach through well-carved servants. The, the impediments I'm referring to are not necessarily the external things we accumulate, such as you have too much stuff. In Job's case, the Lord was removing external things, 
as the precursor to more in-depth work he wanted to accomplish in his soul. Imagine if the only thing the Lord did was allow the devil to destroy Joe's family and possessions. Those losses would affect him, of course, but a more profound work was needed, an action designed to bring his servant into a more useful representation of Christ. Typically, it's the things in our external lives that we value that God rattles or removes So our inner lives began to open us to a more meticulous soul surgery. When the master woodcarver begins to carve on us, he reveals the natural person, the hidden man of the heart. Our reaction is disorientation and confusion, sometimes anger, only affirming those covert and sinful elements that are resident in our idle factories. These expected but adverse reactions to the Lord's work highlight that he was correct. We need redemptive solutions that transform us from the inside out. The Lord has to push us past the tipping point to reveal who we are. If we only operated within our strengths, our powers, our abilities, our gifts, our talents, we would live with an inflated ego a representation of ourselves, never realizing our vulnerabilities because we're working within our own power, our own abilities. Is the person lifting a 10-pound bar at the gym impressing the fifth graders? What is so sad about him is that when the weightier challenges come, he is ill-equipped to handle them. And so God gives us a divine nudge that pushes us past our self-sufficient limits The only way for the Lord to expose what we're not as that we're not as impressive as we might want others to perceive. A famous quote within the Christian community goes like this. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and it will cost you more than you want to pay. Now, that is true. But I was thinking about that, and I wondered, what if we flip this around, take the coin, flip it over and apply it to the Lord regarding sovereign suffering that he allows in our lives, maybe it would sound something like this. The Lord will take you farther than you want to go. The Lord will keep you longer than you want to stay. And the process will cost you more than you could ever pay. From God's perspective, he has no choice but to push us past the tipping point. We're too stuck on ourselves for it to be any other way. This perspective was the message of Paul. As he was trying to explain to the Corinthians why his team felt pushed to the point of death, despairing of life, why God was pushing them past the tipping point beyond their abilities. He didn't want the Corinthians to be ignorant of the trouble that they were experiencing in Asia, so he set the record straight for them and also for us. He had learned the lesson of Job. The Lord loves me so much that he will go to great lengths to save me from myself. To do that, he has to bring me to a place where I cannot fix my problems, giving me the motivation to lean into a higher power. 
Paul talked about going past the tipping point this way. Here is what he said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1. For we do not want you to be ignorant, my brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Here's the great conjunction, the divine conjunction, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the woodcarver who raises the dead. Job said it this way when he finally came to the end. I mentioned this earlier. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Job intellectually knew about the Lord. He had heard of him by the hearing of the ear. He knew so much about the Lord that he could assume that he would be okay. He was confident the Lord would bring him through the fire. He said this in 23.10, Though he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. He knew that much. But what he could not perceive was the difference between knowing the Lord and a fuller, unhindered experience with the Lord. Now my eye sees you. Part of this process was the Lord taking Job from the subtle, self-deceived thinking that he was something to a person who realized he was nothing, deserved nothing, and would only find authentic satisfaction with God alone. For Job, the mission was almost accomplished. He had gone from a man who believed he deserved better to a man who loathed himself, as he said earlier. He was beginning to find spiritual wholeness and human emptiness. A good question for you and me. What does it mean to you to find spiritual wholeness and human emptiness? Job was stripped down, naked. The whittler had whittled. God removed everything in his life that made him something. Job fell apart as God exposed his soul for what it was. The Lord permitted him to agonize for a season, remaining quiet during most of the struggle in the crucible, expecting him to see things in this life that he had to change. The temptation for me would be uh, to rescue Job. If you're a parent, you, you know what I'm saying. It takes sturdy parents and sturdy friends and a sturdy God to love someone with such wisdom, such silence, such courage. Through the agony of the soul, Job was becoming a, a pliable man in the hands of his careful and loving whittler. In time, he grew to accept and embrace the blessing of nothingness. What does it mean to you? to accept and embrace the blessing of nothingness. Rather than complaining about his suffering, he could see beyond his misery. Now my eye sees you. God had broken him enough to the point that he wanted to rely on the Lord who raises the dead, a new experience that transcended human strength and wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. You could say that Job rose above his suffering. He was in the God zone. It is hard for us to see beyond our suffering. We choose to be suffering-centered 
which is how I began here. When you're going through problems, you have two options. We can be suffering-centered or God-centered. Job was suffering-centered as evidenced by talking more about his defeats than the Lord's victories. These otherworldly thoughts are worth our reflection. Imagine living in the Lord's strength rather than ours. I mean, it sounds nice. But if you're like me, getting to the place of simplicity on the other side of complexity is terrifying. We tend to either get stuck in the future possibility of suffering or the current realities of suffering. Fortunately, the book of Job gives us a peek into the pain and a pathway through it. What we learned about Job in the first chapter was correct. He loved God. Job loved God when he had plenty and learned to love God when he had nothing, which is the hard part for most of us. I am glad God let us follow the story arc so we can see how Job loves him when everything that was of value to him was gone. However, it's more crucial to recognize that God loved Job and would not let go of his servant. That's the big lesson here, that whatever the Lord takes us through, and no matter how much we fail, no matter how much we complain, grumble, he will love us. He will never give up on us. This kind of love is more comprehensive than most of us realize. This kind of love will motivate the Lord to whittle us down to size until he has removed all the things that hinder us from experiencing him and life and others fully. You may ask, when will this process end? Well, there are two answers. Number one, only the woodcarver knows As Mr. Campbell sat down on that bench, I mean, only he had an idea. He knew when he got there. And so only the woodcarver knows how to form Christ in us. And number two, we will experience rest when these depraved bodies no longer bother us at glorification. And so the better question is, do we want God to complete what he started when he regenerated us? It would be best to want it since he will complete what he began at salvation. That's what Paul said in Philippians 1.6. We can go kicking and screaming to the woodcarver's bench, or we can ask for the grace to accept the call to die to ourselves as we make our way to his lathe. An excellent way to self-assess your cooperation with him through personal suffering is to answer these two questions. Number one, do I respond in faith to my problems? Am I trusting and resting in the woodcarver's work in me? Or number two, do I react in fear? Am I anxious and complaining about what he is whittling into my life? How you answer these questions will give you a clue as to how much whittling the woodcarver has to do. I have titled this, When God Whittles You Down to Size. Uh, Perhaps uh, you can go to our website, lifeovercoffee.com, and you can just type whittle in uh, the search box, and you can pull this up, and you can read, you can watch, you can listen. For those of you, again, uh, on the podcast, if you want to see Mr. Campbell's If you want to see Tristan's first Christmas tree, well, please understand, uh, this came a year later. 
It took a year to get this out of that Christmas tree, but the whittler knew what the whittler wanted, and he carved it down to size, and it has brought much joy for uh, to us all these years later, and I want you to enter into our joy as well, but do not be deceived to enter into that joy. We have to understand what it took. By the way, the interesting thing about this knot on the back that has Tristan's name etched into it is that there is a knot on the back of it. It's still a fallen, depraved tree. And so as God continues to whittle in our lives, there is not perfection that will come later on. But for now, we can be beautiful, carefully crafted, contoured, carved, whittled pieces in the hands of the great woodcarver. Let me finish by asking a couple of questions. Would you be willing to talk to a friend about the suffering that you have gone through? And what you learned from it. What were some of the things the Lord carved out of your life? How how did you mature? Number two, do you have more respect for God because he loves you so much that he perseveres with you even when you complain from inside your crucible? Maybe you can think about a child who has more respect for a strong and loving parent than a weak and catering parent parent who wants a weak and catering God. No, we want a sturdy God who is willing to love us appropriately, even sometimes not giving us the desires of our heart. Number three, I ask, what does it mean to you to find spiritual wholeness in human emptiness? Would you take the time to discuss that question uh, with a friend? And then finally, number four, how are you imitating God, the woodcarver, with your spouse, with your children, with your friends? Don't you want to be a friend to others like the Lord befriends you? We want to be sturdy friends, not weak friends, not unloving friends that don't care enough to intrude into each other's lives appropriately for God's glory, for God's fame, for mutual benefit. And so how are you imitating our wood-carving God as you, as he uses you in the lives of other people like your spouse, a, a child, or a friend? Again, I've titled this, When God Whittles You Down to Size. For those of you who uh, benefit from our work here and that you're in a position to where you can support our work, would you do that. Uh, we we do all of this freely without charging anyone. There will be thousands upon thousands of people that will read, watch, or listen to what I have just completed here. They're going to enjoy that freely, and we can reach millions more, but we need support to do that. This work is expensive, and so we trust God that He would move hearts of people who are able. If you are not able, please refrain. Don't send us a dime, not a single dime. But if you're able, if you could support our work, 
Please know that every dollar you give reaches hundreds of people. And so you can help us so that we can continue to create resources freely, share them broadly. So like Natasha, Natasha doesn't support our ministry, but she's watching the video on YouTube and she's benefit from it. And as she wrote back and said, I find encouragement through this as I go through this two-year ordeal. For those of you who support our ministry, you are impacting Natasha's life. And you or I, we will not meet her until we get to heaven, but we can be encouraged by what God is doing through this ministry in her life because of your support. And so if you're able to support a one-time donation, a recurring donation. Some of you would like to be a supporting member. You can take that option too. Now, if you become a supporting member, then you can dialogue with us on our private forums, and we would love to talk to you. It's the only place we talk to people. We're not able to talk to people on social media because there's, well, there's 25 plus platforms and it's just not tenable. We can't create resources if I couldn't create anything if I answered questions on social media. And so that's just a a non-starter. But we do want to talk with people. And so we have whittled it down to one place and that's our private forum. And so If that's important to you, then become a supporting member and you can access me and our team on our private forum and we would love to, we would love to talk to you when God whittles you down to size. Thank you so much and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.